chapters 24 and 25 of the Gospel of Matthew, they're very interesting. They record a series of teachings that Jesus gives his followers in the final week of his life, once he's entered Jerusalem, but before he's arrested. And some scholars refer to this series of teachings as the Olivet Discourse, because Jesus is on the Mount of Olives when he tells them these things. Another title that's been used is the Little Apocalypse, because what Jesus has to say in these chapters focuses on his future return in that final apocalyptic day. In chapter 24, as he's talking about his return, Jesus gives a, a wide variety of illustrations to emphasize how sudden and unexpected it will be. He talks about the flood in the days of Noah and how people were going about their business and they weren't ready when the waters came. He talks about thieves breaking in and breaking into people's homes in the middle of the night when homeowners are asleep and they're not prepared. He, he tells a story about a servant who thinks that his master will be gone for a, a long time and so instead of working, he gets drunk and he gets in fights and has a generally wild time and then, of course, gets in big trouble when the master shows up unexpectedly. And, and all these illustrations and stories, they all seem to be making the same point, which Jesus states very clearly near the end of chapter 24 when he says, Therefore you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. And then right after that, right after this chapter ends, Jesus tells another story in Matthew 25 to make the same point. And this time it's a story about 10 girls or, or 10 virgins, depending on how you want to translate the Greek word. And as the story begins, Jesus says that these 10 young women, that they take some lamps and they go out to wait for a bridegroom. Now, this would have made sense to Jesus's original audience. They, they would have been familiar with the lamps and the Jewish ancient Jewish practices around weddings. They'd understand what role these girls played, why they're all sitting around waiting for a bridegroom. The original audience, they would have been familiar with all that, but, but we're not. So let me briefly explain what's going on here. At first, it's important to remember just how big of a deal weddings were back then. Of course, weddings are still a big deal today, but, but back then, weddings were massively important. And they were huge in rural communities. The whole village generally took part in the celebration. And, and that celebration could go on for days. But before all the feasting began, what would happen is that the bridegroom would go to the home of the bride, where he would then spend some time negotiating what was called the mohar, a bride gift with the bride's family. As a, it, it was a way of honoring her and showing her worth. Sometimes that would take a while because it often wasn't just a single gift of money. It often included a variety of smaller gifts, all of which had to be discussed and all of which added to the demonstration of the bride's worth. And then finally, after all that talking and gift giving, after that was done, then the bridegroom would escort his new bride to his own home where the feast would take place. And on the way, they would be accompanied by other young women who were the bride's friends who would carry these torches as a kind of festive illumination for the bride. And that's the role those young women in the story had. They, they're friends of the bride. They're her bridesmaids. 
and they're waiting to escort her and her new husband to the wedding feast. But evidently, they don't all do a very good job. And Jesus says that five of them were wise and five were foolish. Or as one translator puts it, five of them were sensible and five were silly. Now, the sensible ones knew that they, they knew that they played an important role in this wedding and that when the bride and bridegroom came, they needed to be ready to have their torches lit so they could light the way for the bridal party. And they knew that the bridegroom might take a while. After all, they'd been to weddings before. They knew how these things go. So naturally, they bring along some extra oil for their lamps. Well, the word that Jesus uses here is the Greek word lampas, and it's often translated as lamp. But like I said, it was probably more like a torch. Anyway, these sensible girls, they knew what to expect, what their role was, and so they came prepared. But the others, the foolish girls, they obviously didn't think ahead. Now, Jesus doesn't say why. Maybe they were thinking about other things, or, or maybe they forgot that bridegrooms often take their time and they'd probably have to wait. Or maybe they just got so wrapped up in all the excitement of the day that they just didn't think through what they would need. But for whatever reason, by, by the time the bridegroom shows up and it's time to escort them back to his home, they've run out of oil for their torches. So they try to borrow some from the five sensible girls, but they refuse. And, and you know, that seems kind of offensive. Why are these wise girls so selfish? Why won't they just share with their friends? But you got to remember these torches that they're carrying, they're not just helping them see. They're important for the wedding. Their, their light is supposed to honor the bride. And if they try to split the oil, then there won't be enough and the torches will go out. And that, that would be a disaster. One New Testament scholar explains it this way. If they all arrived with burned out torches, it would be a profound humiliation for the bride. And the village gossip about it would go on for years. A bridal procession without burning torches would have been a catastrophe. It's hard for those of us who, who don't live in an honor-shame culture like that bride did. It's hard to really appreciate just how important those torches were. But those wise young women who brought along extra oil, they knew, and they weren't about to let their friend be humiliated. So they tell their foolish friends to go find some merchants and wake them up if necessary, buy some oil for themselves. But by the time they do that, the bridal party has already passed by and they missed their chance. They'd been invited to be right at the center of the celebration and now it's too late and the door is shut. What does the bridegroom say to them when they finally show up and try to get into the wedding party? Truly, I say to you, I do not know you. That sounds kind of rude. I mean, if, if you thought that those sensible girls that they were being a little uncharitable when they refused to share their oil, you must really be put off by what this bridegroom says. Isn't he being a little unfair? I mean, sure, they made a mistake, but surely he knows them. Why is he being so mean and refusing to let them in? And what does this say about Jesus? Now, questions like these are natural, but they miss the point of the story. 
We're not supposed to read meaning into every detail of this story. Just like with all his parables, Jesus isn't giving a a systematic account of what it means to be a part of the kingdom of God or how to get into it or about the nature of God. Nor is he trying to tell a story that's, that's realistic in all its depictions of how people would respond in social situations. Jesus is telling this story to make a basic point. To quote Leon Morris, Jesus is not telling a story about something that actually happened. He's warning people of the dreadful fate of those who know that they should be watching for the coming of the Son of Man, but who do not do this. Thereby, they exclude themselves from any place among the people of God. In other words, Jesus is doing exactly what he did in the previous chapter of Matthew's gospel. And what he continues to do with the next story he tells about some servants entrusted with their master's money. He's not trying to explain an idea. He's not trying to get us to hold a certain opinion. Jesus is trying to force us to ask ourselves a question. Are we ready? Are we living in anticipation of his return? Are you ready for the bridegroom to appear or are you not? Like I said, Jesus doesn't say anything about why five of those girls were unprepared. It's not really the point of the story. But some of what he says in the previous chapter does help us recognize some of the obstacles that tend to prevent us from being alert and ready for his return. And take what he says, for instance, take what he says about that servant who gets drunk instead of working. The reason he does that is because Jesus says, because the servant says to himself, my master is delayed. In other words, he starts to think his master's not coming back, or at least if he does, he's not coming back anytime soon. So he doesn't really need to take it seriously. Now, how often might the same be said of us? How often do we simply assume that if Jesus is coming back, certainly not anytime soon, therefore we don't really need to think about it. Uh, You'll notice that when Jesus talks about his return, he often instructs his followers to look forward to it with with a sense of urgency. Be watchful, he says to them. Be on the lookout. Be alert. Don't fall asleep. All of those phrases convey a sense of of urgent anticipation. But it's very difficult to feel any kind of urgency about something that you don't really think is going to happen, or at least that you assume isn't going to happen anytime soon. So that's one of the obstacles we face. It's not that we think Jesus will never return. We just assume he won't be coming anytime soon. Another obstacle, I think, is the misguided assumption that because God loves us and because God saves us by his grace, that it doesn't really matter all that much what we do in the meantime. The Apostle Paul, he seems to have encountered this attitude among some early Christians, or, or at least he thought it was how some people might respond to his announcement that we are saved by the grace of God. That some people would hear that and think to themselves, well, that's great. If God's just going to forgive me and welcome me no matter what, then I can just keep on living as I was before. Or we might think that it doesn't really matter all that much whether or not you're preparing for Jesus' return because when he does return, 
everyone is going to be included in the feast. Everyone will be welcomed. No one will be excluded. And the theological word for this idea is universalism. And it seems to be gaining increasing traction among a lot of Christians today, including pastors and theologians. And of course, there's a variety of different kinds of universalisms, lots of arguments in favor of and against each one of these. But the common effect of believing in universalism of one kind or another, this idea that in the end, everyone will be saved no matter what, the common effect is that it diminishes the urgency that Christians feel about actively awaiting Jesus' return and about inviting others to do the same. In other words, it tends to make it very difficult to take Jesus' warning in this story seriously because that's what Jesus is doing. By telling this story, it's, it's what he's doing practically these entire two chapters of Matthew. He's giving a warning. Don't be caught off guard. Don't miss out on being a part of the kingdom and joining in the celebration when I return. That's what he's saying. And unfortunately, just like those foolish young women, often we neglect that warning and live as if he's either not coming back or if when he does, it won't matter whether we were looking out for him or not. But that's not the only reason that we fail to heed the moral of this story. Doubt and disbelief, they're not the only obstacles to being watchful and alert. As I mentioned before, one of the illustrations Jesus uses in Matthew 24, when he's talking about his future coming, he talks about the the flood that happened in the days of Noah and how it came suddenly and people were caught off guard. And it's it's interesting that if you pay attention you'll notice that when he describes the people in those days, he describes everything they were doing. They were eating and drinking and marrying and and working and so on and so forth. In other words, they, they weren't just sitting around, they were busy, just like us. Uh, we live in a very busy culture. Of course, that's not inherently wrong, but busyness can have the effect of making us more like those foolish girls in the story than the wise ones. And the reason is because the busier busier you are, the more distracted you are. Intentionally or not, our busyness often serves as a distraction. One writer puts it very starkly. What keeping busy means, he says, is quite simply the refusal, sometimes very brave and sometimes thoughtless, to look reality in the face. And that includes the reality of the fact that whether we're ready or not, Jesus is coming back. And that when he comes, there will be an enormous celebration and all those who have followed him in faith and have been awaiting his return, they'll be caught up in the greatest feast there's ever been. And there will be others who like those foolish bridesmaids, who find that the opportunity has passed them by. Jesus wants to remind us of that, and he wants us to be prepared. So the question for us is, which kind of bridesmaid are you? 